Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Quixotic Topic. Today, I'm joined by Terrence Hampton. And today's topic is philosophy and psychology, in a sense. Terrence came to me and he said that he wanted to talk about what it means to have your own internal philosophy. And so, I guess a good way to start this off is, Terrence, if you could give some background, then, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Um, well, I feel like philosophy, um, the biggest, like, point of it, like, what makes it most useful to people in general is to um, use philosophy as a lens to, like, view what happens in your life and to use philosophy to help you make decisions. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I feel like the best philosophy for each individual is, you know, very personal. So, uh, I feel like each person should work to have their own individualized philosophy that okay. best suits them. That makes sense. And so, I've always subscribed to the notion that philosophy is kind of the science, or at least the study, of thinking and mm -hmm. um, thought paths. That, of course, might be some other science I haven't heard of yet, but <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Um, when it comes to personal philosophies, what do you think is like some of the main factors that would influence that? So like, say you are a blank slate, otherwise known as a baby, and you're trying to figure out your own kind of personal way of thinking, not necessarily like morals or ethics, because I would say that, I would argue that those are somewhat separate, but just in terms of like the way you think, what do you think um, impacts that? Oh, well, I mentioned that the way you think is mostly driven by your experiences. You know, mm -hmm. some people believe that um, we are entirely made through our memories. Right. You know, our experiences basically decide how we turn out if you subscribe to the um, nurture versus nature. Right, you know, right, 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 right. And so when it comes to nurture versus nature, mm -hmm. when you're like, I lost my train of thought, my bad. <laughs> I guess that's my philosophy. Um, when it comes to nurture versus nature and you're like you're raising a child, um, one very important thing that comes into mind is like, how are you going to raise that baby in a sense? And so what point, if you're like raising a child, I guess, this is a fairly general abstract question, but mm -hmm. what kind of, at what age do you think did you or if someone you were raising, what age do you think they would come around to like really understanding what it means to think for yourself? Oh, uh, that's oh, that's a very difficult question. I think the um around the age of like, you know, twelve, thirteen is when most people start to, you know, try and think for themselves. Mm -hmm. Either that's just because you think you know enough about the outside world to start making decisions mm -hmm. or you're just tired of listening to other people and mm -hmm. you want to do stuff for yourself. Right, right. And so would you say like in earlier ages, from mm -hmm. like let's say from age like five to ten or even eleven, okay. or is that thinking based off of just what you've seen and you're just like simulating like variables that already exist in a sense, and you know, and none of the conclusions that you're really coming to are new? Um. Well, I mean, I believe personally that most people don't have an original thought, at least for a very long time. Okay. Because, you know, so many people I've lived before, is, there has to be definitely at least one person that's thought the same thing as you at that point in your life. Right. But I feel like your thought patterns up to, like, a certain age are mostly dependent on just, you know, your surroundings, especially your parents or just whoever you spend the most time with. Mm -hmm. They uh, greatly influence them. Well, you, excuse me. And, you know, you try to imitate them, especially for me. I used to try and imitate my dad a lot. Right. Since I was around him the most. I um, ended up imitating, like, I would say my dad a lot as well. Mm -hmm. I think um, when it comes to imitation, one thing that really comes into mind is role models yeah. and whatnot. And, like, my dad was a very big... My dad still is. <laughs> He's still alive. <laughs> um, my dad is a very big role model in my life. I think that in a lot of ways, in terms of decision-making, I mm -hmm. emulate yeah. him. And so 
this uh, going off the back of originality in a sense, it would seem that even when you're in that like 12 and 14 stage, because like I'm 17 now and like I still can find um, ways and point out uh, decisions in which like, okay, yeah, this was an emulation of my dad or like mm -hmm. I thought what my dad, I thought about what my dad would do in this situation and that is mm -hmm. how I acted. Yeah. I think that um, in that sense, if there truly isn't ever like an original thought, mm -hmm. then it's kind of hard to have like an original thinking path mm -hmm. you see what i mean and so when it comes to i guess philosophy would you say that in that sense everything is very repetitive in a sense um yeah i like to compare uh, philosophy to music because okay. I'm, I'm big into that sort of thing and um with music like originality typically comes from people mixing and matching like different bits from different styles of music okay to create like a new thing that people aren't familiar with so i imagine it's the same with philosophy you take a bit from an idea here or an idea there, mm -hmm. you come up with something that suits you. All right. And so when we think of philosophy, we always like to point out like the big names mm -hmm. like Nietzsche, Hegel, John Paul Sartre, and such and such. And of course, they were very influential in, I would say, allowing the general public to become aware of philosophy. But if we go to um, my original definition, at least, of what philosophy is, and that's just interpreting things and thinking, mm -hmm. as in essentially to be a philosopher is to exist. Yep. Um, why would you say, well, at least I would think that there is a very large kind of discrepancy between like these published authors and like living and experiencing philosophy in a sense because um if when i when i read like hegel sartre and nietzsche and the likes like i always saw them as very crystallized forms of ways of thinking it's like oh yeah this was published this is very like fluffed up and very <laughs> yeah. like formal and authoritative mm -hmm. my life isn't all that formal or authoritative that's not to say that like i'm not formal at all but what i'm saying is that there's definitely a difference between um the way the way in which how i think wow that's kind of a tongue twister and the way in which people have written how people think you still following me there yes <laughs> i think they're um different for some reason and given that um thoughts are fairly kind of repetitive in a sense, mm -hmm. I, I start to question why exactly is there such a perceived difference there? Would you think that that's maybe just um, following kind of the music theory in a sense that like um, everyone's like in life experiences are just remixes of stuff that's happened prior? Um, ooh, in mean, terms of like the crystallized stuff that I was talking about before. In terms of the crystallized stuff, personally I just think that's because of um, the difference between not typically thinking super deeply mm -hmm. about philosophy because you know it's not your biggest thing in life you have other aspirations that you're trying to achieve but um whenever you're not thinking about philosophy too much you just go based off like what you're doing at the time your experiences as opposed to sitting down and like trying to logic it out mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. which i think gives some um, the published like philosophies the crystallized feel that you're talking about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so in a sense like that kind of writing down that process of writing things down um, i think socrates wrote a, talked about this a little bit what i'm about to get into mm -hmm. um writing things down you kind of lose yes. that internal kind of genuine factor yeah, yeah. of mm -hmm. of your personal philosophy and so when you try and crystallize it it's no longer yours in a sense or as much as it's just a representation what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Whenever you language is very constrictive when it comes to certain ideas, you always lose something when you're trying to explain an idea to someone else. You can't 
understand someone perfectly, you know what I'm saying? Or at least you can't know that you have. Right, right, right. And that's like, that's such an interesting concept because words, language, and paper are the, our main methods, (laughs) essentially our only methods of communication. (laughs) But as we've just kind of proven in this uh, derivation is that that is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. Like writing down how you feel that no longer becomes how you feel. It's, it's weird in the sense. And so I would, what comes into mind for me is a question that I would have is like, how would we fix that? Is it, would it, is it possible to truly communicate on a one-to-one scale what you think given, um, well, I guess not given the tools that we have now, we would have to create them. Yes, definitely. Do you think that that is a tangible thing that exists? Um, oh, man, that's very tough. It definitely does not exist right now. And I'm not sure we'll ever be able to achieve that kind of like intimacy with other people. Right, right. You have to have like a direct link to their mind. Right, and then like another layer to that is it's not even just, it's not only just the intimacy of you and another person, it's Mm -hmm. the intimacy between you and yourself. Yes. Because like say um, right now I'm like, let's say like 10 years ago when I was seven years old, I wrote down like something on a piece of paper and yeah. I was like my life goals and whatnot and I wrote it down I crystallized it yeah. and then 10 years later I come back at it mm-hmm. uh, if a crystallized form of yourself or like your thoughts and emotions if that isn't a true representation of yourself and I look at those life goals back when I was 10 how can I ever like interpret that in a sense that like it would seem that regardless of how hard I try to kind of write things down or try to save them Mm -hmm. since the um x-axis of time is always proceeding onwards and forwards to infinity Mm -hmm. i would never be able to go back in a sense Mm -hmm. and then like a continuing the mathematical analogy if you were to go back then your life technically stops being a function because it fails the vertical line test (laughs) (laughs) so what necessarily does that mean what does that imply for like grand um excerpts of history and whatnot like the declaration of independence the bill of rights the magna carta stuff like that like these very large and very important um documents that we frame our entire society um upon if those weren't the genuine thoughts and impressions of the people from that time and throughout time there's even like a larger layer put onto it that we can't access now Mm -hmm. what does that mean for us now what are you what are your thoughts on that um hmm. well at least in america we try and go off of precedents in society precedents excuse me mm-hmm. so um, we try to follow what they followed back then because it worked for them but um uh there's a philosopher named um oliver holmes jr mm-hmm. who um he was into he was law he was a law guy he was a lawyer and um he preached that instead of going off of precedents of past cases you should you know take each case you know as it is on its own because mm-hmm. society's expectations will change exactly all right society is always consistently yeah. drifting mm-hmm. um <laughs> and so that this might um, become a bit anti-establishment then, but that would mean <laughs> that the old um documents of yours such as the declaration of independence and the bill of rights may or may not be the best um lens to examine american society today yeah um that it that has a lot of other interesting implications Cations, yeah. as well, but um, I want to go back a bit to the kind of the thesis that we had in terms of going back okay. in a sense. And yep. so, seeing as that language and writing may or may not be, um, we're kind of leaning towards may not mm-hmm. be the best form of accessing our past. What do you think would be a better way? If again, if any, oh, 
Is there a better way? Is there a better way to, to look back at our past other than just like r what is written, what is crystallized? Um. Oh, maybe like recordings or videos or pictures, things like that. You know, mm -hmm. snapshot, snapshot in time. Right. Right. Perhaps. Because, like, you can look on someone's face if you know them well enough and know, like, almost exactly what's going through their head. Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And mm -hmm. if you were, if you knew yourself that well back then, then if you didn't forget, you could probably put yourself in your shoes again. Probably. Yeah. That's a big probably. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, granted, the technological advancements that we've made um, to this day and on the mini 2020, mm -hmm. um, the fact that we're able to record our faces now record our voice and have other people listen to it yeah. <laughs> the humble brag <laughs> um the fact that we're able to do that is really really good because if what you're saying is true then that allows us to have a better aggregate of who we were mm -hmm. yeah. in a sense it will allow us to access that better and so it's it's kind of sad when you think about like the lion's share of human history mm -hmm. happened before these technological advancements this happened where the best that we had was writing things down right mm -hmm. and so i wonder if given kind of the exponential growth of technology seeing as that writing in itself like a stylus on paper was technology back then they probably the reason that it existed of course like writing existed to keep track of like numbers and whatnot and then it evolved into like the communication of ideals mm -hmm. yeah. um computers in a sense, the they mainly existed to count and track numbers better. Right. And yep. then it became the communication of ideals. I think you can see where I'm going here with this. Mm -hmm. We think that recording our voices and recording our faces now may be the best aggregate of ourselves, mm -hmm. like in the present. But like 2,200, 2,000 years from now, will that still be the case? Mm, I reckon not, definitely. I, th I think that might be one of the biggest like problems in the sense of like consistently going onwards and upwards mm -hmm. is because like regardless regardless of the fact that like yeah there will always be kind of like a brighter day there will always be something better that mm -hmm. also means that there will always be something worse of course yeah. in a sense and so that kind of like that exponential growth is accompanied by an exponential decay um if citing this literally we can think about how many phones right now are filling landfills like <laughs> all over the world like yeah how many people do you know today have an iphone 4 zero right exactly but then like back when the iphone 4 came out almost everyone had one yep. <laughs> um how many people have the iphone 10 10 plus 10 plus to the 10th power whatever <laughs> <laughs> now and how many people are going to have that not even like 10 or like five years from now definitely not. It's, it's like def two max right right exactly it's it's a very it's a kind of a frightening concept to think that like the technology that we have now will only exist for so long before it becomes literally obsolete yeah um as we and as some people will theorize as we progress towards like a singularity and the robots will take over but <laughs> as a conversation for another day um, bringing this back around a bit to uh, personal philosophies, All right. um, I think I want to ask you, what exactly is your personal philosophy? I know you said that you were inspired a lot by your dad, but if you could articulate it the best that you can, knowing that <laughs> articulation is obviously may or may not be, <laughs> again, I have to have that disclaimer so people won't disagree with me, <laughs> but um, may or may not be the best aggregate for you now. Regardless, mm -hmm. what would you say your personal philosophy is? Oh, man, that's very hard. I've been thinking about this for a few years now, actually, and I still mm -hmm. haven't 
found a concrete answer. Mm. You know, if when you're constantly changing as a person, it's kind of hard to find a very strict regimen that fits you only for like the rest of your life. You right, know exactly. I mean? It's kind of like trying to sum yourself up in one word. Yeah. <laughs> College. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I can't. Sorry, I can't tell you. Oh but. yeah, um, take some more time to think about it. And I'll talk about mine. All right. Um, I would say that I agree in the notion that your personal philosophy is something that isn't um, concrete. Mm-hmm. And I would also argue that because of the fact that again, going back to the exponential model we talked about before, humans um, humans aren't exponential. Actually, they're logarithmic because eventually we die. But um, the logarith the logarith I am not saying that right at all. <laughs> logarithmic. Close enough. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we'll go with. That that'll be our personal headcanon for how to pronounce that. <laughs> um the logarithmic scale of life, I think when you're trying to define it, it's not going to be concrete until like the very end and of course um given our biology we're not allowed to use our vocal cords after we perish it doesn't really come with the deal of life um Mm -hmm. but you can only really sum it up with after you die because then you can take everything because there's there's no extra content that you would have there's no um alternating factors or um interesting new variables to account for Mm -hmm. like everything's like finish finito yeah and that's why i think it's biographies are so like powerful i think i think that's why a lot of people um get a lot of value from them because they're able to get a concrete kind of version of someone's life Mm -hmm. at the same time that concrete version is crystallized yeah and going back to what we discussed before that would mean that it's not a very good aggregate for that person's life Mm. it's ironic yeah because everyone (laughs) has their own you know biases as well Mm -hmm. and so Going back to actually like answering my own question, <laughs> I would say that my personal philosophy is that no matter what, there's always something to look at, mm-hmm. at least. And, and that is very general. But again, like personal philosophies and whatnot should be general, mm-hmm. given the kind of diversity of life. I think that there, there will always be something that can change there's always something that will change and there's always something that you can change that, that that's kind of <laughs> it's kind of recursive but um bear with me i think that given kind of the interesting and the the interesting expanse of of life there there's there will always be something that you can do mm-hmm. no matter what um of course that may or may not be original but i i pose you a question would something technically be original if you don't know that someone else made it? Uh, for all intents and purposes, yeah. Okay. But I mean, then again, if something's original or not, I feel like it doesn't really matter that much. Okay. Okay. In the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. like if we're going back to the music analogy, um, I'm sure you know Led Zeppelin. I am aware of its existence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this uh similar band that um is came out re- not came out but like what's oh, normally formed recently okay. called a greta van fleet and if you like listen to um some of their songs the, the style is like diff- oh, indistinguishable you can't you can barely tell the difference but the oh music's my. still good you know what I'm saying? this is really impressive actually because yeah. like there there are so many like even on a technical level like with instruments there's so many like fine nuances that you can make with an instrument uh, right in order to produce a different sound in order to get a sound that as you are accounting so like one-to-one is that's actually really surprising i'll have to check them out yeah 
And so um, now we're going to come back to see if you have like any further interpretation of the question of what your personal philosophy is. Um, huh, I know. I guess based on my actions as of late, I just am trying to be, you know, better. Not better in like, you know, the technical sense of like a skill, but better in terms of like forming connections and mm-hmm. maintaining relationships, like being a better son, a better friend, a better person in general. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of that optimistic viewpoint of up, onwards and upwards improvement. Yeah. Okay. Where do you think that you're, um, that kind of, how do you think you got to that conclusion in a sense? Is that like based off of, um, actions prior, like as you'd started your sentence off with or? Um, yeah, I guess it just came from like feeling bad about letting the people around me down. You know what mm, I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, that's always a terrible feeling. You know what Definitely. I mean? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Guilt, disappointment, shame has to be like some of society's most powerful creations. You know what I mean? Okay. That's actually a really interesting notion. The kind of the creation of an emotion. Yeah. Because like we, we go with kind of the biological and scientific definition that like an emotion is a specific chemical chain happening inside of your brain always. Mm-hmm. But the kind of manufacturing and amplifying yes, of those chemical especially. chains, I think, is, is very interesting because uh, recursively it creates though it creates stronger chemical chains. For example, let's talk about um, anger, for example. All right. Um, anger, that's one of the easiest ones to analyze because it's so complex. That's mm-hmm. paradoxical, but the philosophy is paradoxical, too. And that's <laughs> going to be my excuse. <laughs> and so anger is a release... It's a releasing of a certain chemical. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah, I'm not a bio person. So um, I, w- I would say that, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm a bio person. I, I like science. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a lean toward computer science. But, like, that's just as general as science is, to be <laughs> completely honest. <laughs> so, I guess, like, I'm a, I'm a bio person right now. All right. So... Uh, me as the distinguished bio person that I am and right. that can't tell you the name of the chemical <laughs> that's released in the brain um, it's cited it's been cited and this is a psychological thing that red is something that can amplify those feelings of anger and this is something that has kind of been encoded in our like blood mm-hmm. in our genetics just because of its constant kind of um, like reinforcement reinforcement yeah. throughout like eons pretty much mm-hmm. um, it's also that's also another interesting thing how like something intangible such as emotion can have tangible effects um, later on in a bloodline so to say but um, how red can amplify feelings of like rage and just general like aggressiveness and anger mm-hmm. I think that when it comes to advertising um, being able to take that knowledge and gear it such that it makes you money because that's like the whole point of advertising is to make people money um let's be real here um i think it's very interesting and also kind of deceptive in a Mm -hmm. sense because like say i'm using red to advertise some brand spanking new um product and this is a little bit reductionist but uh for the sake of the metaphor it it sticks (laughs) um you you're taking that red and Mm -hmm. you're kind of implying that the person should feel aggressive about it Mm -hmm. you're you're kind of you're taking the neutral disposition that all humans generally have of course that's another like huge bed of worms that we can get into later but Mm -hmm. um that kind of neutral disposition towards anything and 
adding kind of like that red tint to it and implying that you you are to feel aggressive about this mm -hmm. is is deceptive in a sense yes. because like there's no real reason why you should do that. Mm -hmm. And again, I have to um, bring back the context that that is reductionist because it is all, it is also true that red conveys feelings of lust, and a lot of people boil it down that red um, implies impulse in a sense because lust, anger, and like seething rage, those are the same thing. Those are all um, very impulsive actions. Yeah. And so, in a sense, I guess a better way to articulate myself is to say that. When a company is advertising something with the color red, they are kind of subconsciously forcing you to be impulsive when you have no reason to be. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about philosophy, but I kind of want to get into the ethics of that. How, how does that make you feel as like a consumer, as as someone who like um, consumes? Mm -hmm. how, how, how does kind of that deception make you, or at least perceived deception of again I, I could be completely wrong i don't think i am though yeah. um how does that make you feel i mean well obviously it annoys me it's very irritating especially when it comes to unhealthy things like candy soda etc they put bright colors on it mm -hmm. to get like children and other people to buy it you know so right 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 to, uh, as a detriment to their health you know but they mm -hmm. don't care obviously yeah and so kind of that design mm -hmm. philosophy has lent its hand to incentivize a certain um, psychology in people. Mm -hmm. And so the, the bridge between philosophy and psychology is a very, very small one. In fact, yeah. it's, it's barely a bridge at all. <laughs> I would say that in some cases, they're definitely one and the same. And so with um, psychology, psych yeah, psychology, <laughs> just making sure I'm saying the right <laughs> P word, <laughs> there, what comes into question is like ethics, yeah. in a sense. And so I want to touch on how kind of our world has a focus on, has a hyper focus on a very specific set of ethics um, later on. But one thing I want to ask you is that everyone kind of has their internal um, philosophy. Would you agree with the notion that everyone also has their own internal psychology, in a sense? Yeah, definitely. There's yeah. Uh, definitely some nature, you know what I'm saying, to mm -hmm. an individual that just comes with the package. Right, so. right. And so how much exactly does come with the package? If we're, are we saying that nurture versus nature is a question of philosophy versus psychology? Mm, I don't know if I would go that far. Okay. But I feel like people are born with their, you know, innate disposition, but that's, uh, that's basically negligible in comparison to the effects of their environment mm -hmm. as they're coming up. Okay. And so, like, again, we go back to being, like, in the environment will always be kind of the predominant factor in someone's development, like, always. I mean, that's how I feel, personally. Generally. Yeah, I, I agree. I would also think that, like, the people that you're consistently around in the environment that you consistently live in will definitely define and um, shadow or color in um, the actions that you take as mm -hmm. a human. Yeah. Like, it, that only, it would only make sense that, um, for example, if you grew up in like a blue room and you spent most of your time like near the ocean and like had a lot of blue influences in your life mm -hmm. your favorite color would probably, probably with very small degrees of error mm -hmm. be, be blue, blue. <laughs> right um of course like that's a whole nother thing this is like a very topical kind of discussion of philosophy and psychology i think that there are so many like facets and niches that niches niches <laughs> um there are so many niche aspects to um philosophy and psychology that it it's 
impossible to exhaust and be comprehensive in a 45 or even like two hour time frame. I mean, people have written entire dissertations on these subjects. Mm -hmm. Like, um, but that's actually something that I also want to touch on. The kind of mastery sense. Uh, I think that we kind of went to the, the going back to the crystallization aspect of, of knowledge in a sense, because mm -hmm. that's what we were talking about. Would you say that if you're able to crystallize knowledge to a certain degree such that you're able to get, like, a, a cold-bodied reader or even a warm-bodied reader is able to get a, at least 1.5 to 1 representation of your original thought, given that, I'm going to drop the maybe, <laughs> <laughs> given that your crystallization is no longer your original thought, do you think that mastery is what allows your crystallization to become that original thought oh if that makes sense i can try and rearrange my words to i feel like what you're saying is correct me if i'm wrong but if you're if you understand your idea that you're trying to communicate deeply enough mm -hmm. that you have the skill to basically explain it to mm -hmm. anyone through mm -hmm. your writing mm -hmm. okay yeah, um, yeah 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 okay cool just <laughs> like i mean it, it's very easy to get tongue twisted on these sorts of things so it's important to make sure that everyone's on the same page as always mm -hmm. but yeah um, I mean, obviously, I feel like it comes down to both sides. Mm -hmm. But, like, if you if you understand your idea well enough that, and you can explain it simply, mm -hmm. then most people should be able to get it. Yet. Right, right. Yeah. And so how does one kind of acquire that skill? Of course, like, a lot of people say, like, oh, yeah, you just have to spend, like, 10,000 hours. <laughs> I, I think that that saying has gone around so much that it's sort of become a platitude in the sense that, like, yeah, you just kind of, just spend 10,000 hours. That was easy. Boom. Mastered. You mm -hmm. can communicate your crystallization of ideas perfectly and, always, and, and everyone will always understand what you're saying. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it's, it's a very complex kind of thing to not only understand, mm -hmm. not only to have like a way of thinking, but also to be understood. Yes. Uh -huh. Because I think that in, in order to be understood, you have to truly understand yeah all right, right again we're like this is pretty much just a wordplay the podcast <laughs> um i think that might be the reason why there are so many kind of disputes arguments and um disagreements in the world is because not a lot of people put the ten thousand hours into understanding they mm -hmm. try and put the ten thousand hours into being understood they do it in the wrong order i think um if we all spent a, a bit more time focusing on not just like understanding other people, yeah. but just like being able to have a thorough understanding of just things in general, mm -hmm. that we would all be able to be understood a bit better. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Increasing general knowledge would definitely help all. But I feel like the main thing missing is communication mm -hmm. just as its own thing. Because mm -hmm. communication is very important in like every type of relationship you'll have. Right. Yeah. And so, like, the thing with communication is that we were talking about this before, but, like, mm -hmm. it may or may not just be ineffective. That's true. Like, yeah. like writing and speaking and talking and mm -hmm. recording and, um, I don't know, Morse code and <laughs> all, all other forms of communication. It's just not working. Yeah, it's not for sufficient. us. Like, I, and I'm, I'm assuming that, like... There, there's a give to every take, a push to every shove. I think that there, there was 
another argument saying that the methods of communication we have are sufficient and there are they've been as sufficient as they ever will be and will only continue to improve there's definitely an argument there mm -hmm. but working with um, my personal knowledge I do think that I think there's kind of a delta in a sense there, there's a there's a specific time period and I have no genuine way of calculating it, um, of when like a communication system will be maximally effective. Okay. Like it will have the maximum impact. It, the amount of time it will take to get a one-to-one -one representation of a crystallization. I really hope that people are able to understand all of the terms that we use in this podcast. <laughs> Cause like it's, it's it, as in, rudimentary terms is this very big brain <laughs> um but going back to what i was saying i think that the time it takes to achieve a crystallization that is one-to-one -one, that is kind of uh, a notion that, to keep track of in terms of like effectiveness of a communication system because mm -hmm. like when it comes to communication systems it's like how easy can i get the entirety of someone's idea mm -hmm. in the least amount of time, right? Okay. I think that the instant that a communication system is employed, that kind of threshold of easiness to understand will kind of just wrap it up um, as that, or easiness to be understood, mm -hmm. rather. Um, that is at its, like, peak. But then as time goes on, it becomes, like, slower and slower. And then, of course, this is honestly just me spitballing here. I might be completely wrong in that notion. It might be such that the longer a communication system is employed, the closer we get to having that one-to-one -one, um, representation. What do you think? Um, well, I feel like, first off, it depends on the language. You know, different languages have a certain amount of uh, specificity you can get with your words. Mm -hmm. Like, English, I feel like, has a high cap. For specificity, because okay. there there's so many words in the English language that you know that me and you and everyone listening don't even know exist at this point. Mm -hmm. There's like you can minimize the gray area in your speech if you master the language and you know you can communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. But like just in general, yeah, I think we'll like let's say it's like a limit. We'll get infinitely close. Okay. Yeah, but like close, but just no cigar. Yeah, this is the limit. Okay. Um, I. That's another variable that I haven't actually considered, and it's very important to consider, is the fact that there are multiple languages. We were kind of talking about um, languages, and I think we were both kind of going with the mindset that we were talking about English. Yeah. But um, we were talking that, like, all languages as a whole have kind of this problem of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. But it might be such that there are, like, there is a kind of just alpha language <laughs> there like there is a language that no matter what, we will always be able to have that, like, one-to-one -one representation. Mm-hmm. I would go forth the posit that that language are the dead ones, or those languages are the dead ones, like Latin, mm -hmm. for example. Because oh yeah, I see what you're saying. If we go if we go back a couple of minutes in this mm -hmm. podcast, I remember talking about a logarithmic <laughs> um, curve <laughs> of yeah. a human mm -hmm. in a sense, and that like you would only be able to understand and evaluate the whole of that human after their time here on this earth has expired. Yeah. Um, Languages, uh, if we look at them in the basis that they also have a life and a death, whether mm -hmm. that curve be logarithmic or whatever, um, if we look at it like that, then it would seem to me that a dead language 
is one that all of the kind of fine nuances yeah. and um, variabilities can be eliminated. Yeah, because it's, it's not changing. Right, right. Yeah. It, it's unchanging. It's not. It's not a living language. Of course. Um, that's also like another thing because like with texting and uh, multimedia messages and yeah. whatnot and memes and whatnot, language, <laughs> <laughs> language um, in all aspects, all languages are like always constantly evolving. Yeah. A language that isn't evolving, however, is able to be understood better. And I think this is <laughs> everything is kind of coming back in full circle now because this is a conclusion that has already been reached but mm -hmm. latin is really effective in communicating and that is why most scientists well all of science uses it to um organize and uh name things because mm -hmm. no matter what anyone with a base level understanding of latin will know what that is yeah and this has helped with communication because it has helped some um, scientific efforts across the world mm -hmm. be able to understand things and so it's interesting to kind of see that switch in a sense and to, and to try and understand the differences between like this dead language mm -hmm. and what and not necessarily what it has done but what it is doing for us mm -hmm. and what an alive language like English or yeah. German, French, Spanish, Mandarin, what this alive language will do for us mm -hmm. in a sense, because it's, it's interesting to think about like a death of a language because you spend so much time using it. You never really kind of think about like, yeah, this could die. Yeah. Like uh, we can talk about like the dark ages, for example, that was mm -hmm. a period in which um, there was a very large amount of illiterate people in Europe. Mm -hmm. the, the language didn't necessarily die, but it was very much like dormant in a sense. And it came back and then it changed. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's if we were to treat or I guess if we were to go with the notion that language is um, consistently evolving and changing somewhat similar to a human uh -huh. that we would be able to <laughs> understand and under and be understood a bit better because if we operate in kind of the basis that a a language will change mm -hmm. and that the and the language is constantly changing then we already go in with the notion that there are terms that we don't know yeah and so if we kind of go into that go into a language or go into a conversation at least like trying to be pragmatic here um go into a conversation with that knowledge that like yeah there are things or capabilities of this language that i haven't necessarily seen yet yeah um and now i'm gonna take this back a couple more minutes to the <laughs> podcast would you think that these consistent evolutions and interpretations of a language are original hmm so I assume you mean original as in, like, never-before-seen words, like, in the history of the world? Or do you mean, yeah. like, okay. <sighs> kind of like the the creation of ain't mm -hmm. and its um, crystallization, again, yeah. going back to that, and solidification into the English dictionary mm -hmm. in addition to the colloquial lexicon of Americans. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to that, like, was ain't an original notion? Um, yeah, I guess we could say it is because, yeah. you know, even though we translate words in between language to language, they don't mean exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Connotation is mm -hmm. very important. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, another thing like that that's really interesting about this is if we look at it such that you are able to take 
the the English language, which as of right now is twenty six letters A through Z. Yeah. Um, there, it's it would be a very simple math problem to find out how many different permutations mm -hmm. or and communate and <laughs> communations. <laughs> how many different permutations and combinations of the alphabet is there? That like exists. It's a very, very, very large number, of course, and yeah. that number is a bit smaller when you have to account that the certain language rules, yeah. such that a word, at least words as we understand them now, mm -hmm. have to have um, one of the values. <laughs> oh man! Wow! <laughs> one of the vowels in yes. A E I O U and U, and sometimes Y, mm -hmm. in case the other five don't work, and so. Given that, it would be a very simple question of just kind of analyzing a list, like mm -hmm. given of a current dictionary and a um, in this permutation combination uh, list that you've calculated in Excel for some reason because you're <laughs> okay. um, And if you were to like, you could go into like a code and write a very quick program to compare the two data sets, mm -hmm. um, probably in Mathematica, but no one uses Mathematica because Mathematica because Mathematica sucks it's garbage yeah. it's, it's garbage no one likes it um but this podcast wasn't about uh <laughs> mathematica and so that's all I'll speak on the matter because that's all it really deserves um <laughs> if you were to compare those two data sets uh, via program or just um analyzing them by eye mm -hmm. um i think it would be a very easy question to see that have we ran out of words have ha are there still words that have um yet to be put into existence Hmm. Probably, yeah. Especially because you could just make up words. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if you think about conlangs, you know, constructed languages. Mm -hmm. You'll see them in, like, Star Trek, Game of Thrones, etc. People just, like, do it if they feel like it, and then it works. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, another thing is kind of just the, the connotation mm -hmm. of these, uh, I guess, proto-words, or right. like words that are technically fictitious but aren't really. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's interesting to see how like there's the, the meaning behind a word kind of exists randomly. And mm -hmm. I, I, to, to cite and add evidence to this, it's like, why is ain't ain't? Right? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. like, like why, why was... A I N apostrophe T. Like, why did the ad exact combination of letters become ain't and what it means? Um, of course, that can be described as uh, dialect because, from my understanding, ain't came from the contraction isn't. Yeah. And it was just like kind of a not necessarily miscommunication how it's, how people said it, yeah. but like it eventually just kind of got morphed into ain't because yeah. it means the same thing yeah um but if we were talking about something going back to the, fic the fictitious uh, proto words mm -hmm. these words that exist but don't exist they're kind of like schoiner's word schoiner 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 you know I, i'm not pronouncing Are it you right talking about schrodinger schrodinger wow yeah. <laughs> you know i've always read that mm -hmm. but i've never said it out loud <laughs> like I've never had to say it out loud, and so I. <laughs> Sh Sh Schrodinger, Sh Schrodinger, someone. Schrod, yeah, yeah, the cat guy, the cat guy, yeah, yeah the cat superposition cat, yeah, right. the superposition cat, and so yeah. like super. Well, I said that to say the super superposition words, yeah, yeah. in a sense, and uh, I think a good point to start and close this podcast down is a book that I read in the second grade called Frindle. 
um, Frindle was a book about this one dude who had way too much free time on his hands. <laughs> um, he picked up a pin and just started calling it Frindle for no apparent reason. All right. Um, of course, like, I don't know if Frindle was a word that had existed before the the book came out or not but he just decided to start calling it Frindle and eventually it follows the protagonist's quest to get it published in the dictionary because the story needs a plot uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very very odd book but I do think that it um, represents the ideas communicated in today's episode very well Yeah. and on that note again uh, I believe that this is where we will stop alright and so, as always, thank you for joining me on this adventure into philosophy, psychology, and words. As always, this is DP from the QT, signing out.